everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, 15%, 1-5% off your order. The headline is, there was a red wave nowhere except New York. The cruelest irony of the midterm elections is that New York was the only place where there was a clear red wave. New York, which was supposed to be our salvation, might be our undoing. That's the law of unintended consequences at work. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. As we assess and break down what took place and why in the midterm elections, we're going to be talking on this podcast to a number of experts, leaders, journalists, as well as some members of Congress. The day after midterms, I had the opportunity to speak with Democratic Congressman Richie Torres about what took place on Tuesday. I like talking to Congressman Torres because while he is a partisan, yes, he is a Democrat, he does call balls and strikes on his own party. The votes are still being counted and will likely be counted for a couple weeks, but there are some initial lessons here. I think you'll appreciate his candor about what took place in New York specifically, as well as things Democrats can do better. I should tell everyone here, we'll also be bringing on Republicans on this podcast as we really try to get the full picture for everybody. A bit of background on Torres. He's 34 years old, one of the youngest members of Congress. He was reelected to a second term on Tuesday night. He represents the South Bronx of New York City. But when he returns to Washington as part of the New York congressional delegation, there will be several new Republican members. I talked to him about where Democrats got it wrong in New York, especially on crime. Notably, if Republicans are able to finally clinch the majority in the House, some of it will be on the back of Democrats they defeated in New York State. So I talked to Torres about the lessons from the election for Democrats as well as Republicans. We also discussed his feelings about President Biden running for re-election. And Torres also talks about the future of his party in the House, specifically Nancy Pelosi and some of those leaders that have been there for decades. How he feels about them continuing on as leaders or whether it's time for a new generation. Before we get started here, a reminder to subscribe or follow this podcast on whatever app you're listening to us on. It'll ensure you don't miss a single episode. With that, today's Mo News interview. All right, Congressman Richie Torres, uh, who just won his second term in office. So great to be talking to you. It's an honor to be here. So uh, first of all, congrats on your win last night. Thank you. It was a tough one. Congressman Torres, I'm sure there are a lot of Democrats that were very jealous of the race that you had in South Bronx. Uh, yes, I, I managed to win by more than 80%. So. 
I like chatting with you because I appreciate your honest assessments, even when they defy party orthodoxy. And so I wanted to get your take now. We're still, as we speak here, less than 24 hours out. Uh, ballots, millions of ballots have still yet to be counted across the country. Um, what is your assessment the next day of what took place last night? Well, the Republican Party was waiting for a red wave that never came. What ultimately came was more of a trickle than a wave. You know, in, in, in the midterm elections, the party in power historically loses the House by wide margins. You know, Truman lost 55 seats in his midterm elections, Clinton 53 seats, Obama 63 seats. By contrast, Biden might only lose a few seats in the single digits. So Democrats had one of the best midterm performances in recent memory. Republicans had one of the worst. And the reason can be summed up in two words, a Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump's iron grip on the Republican Party has become the kiss of death. The Trump-anointed candidates fell catastrophically short of the expectations of a red wave. Uh, I think the average since Truman is losing 26 House seats. Uh, you mentioned Clinton, Trump, Obama, all a range of 40 to 60 House seats. But what was so interesting going into this race is that if you look at Biden's popularity or his lack of popularity, it was a hit, it was at historic lows. So how do you explain, I mean, beyond the, the Trump factor, um, how do you explain how Democrats in a number of these places, I mean, you had colleagues uh, or soon to be colleagues who won uh, races in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, that they weren't expecting to. What do you think made the difference, if you can kind of uh, brush it with broad strokes, knowing that all races have their own individual factors? First, we had an impressive bench of frontliners. We had talented frontliners like Abigail Spanberger, like Alyssa Slotkin, who have a proven ability to win fiercely contested races. And the Republicans had the opposite. Um, the MAGA Republicans who were running struggle to appeal to uh, voters in these in these frontline districts. Um, I would say, you know, even though we were in a period of, of heightened inflation, um, you know, it was all about turnout. The, the, our country has become so deeply polarized that each party fears the other as an existential threat to the country, which led to extraordinarily high voter turnout on both sides. Typically in a midterm election, one side has voter enthusiasm, the other has depressed turnout, and the result is a massive imbalance or is a massive swing in power. By contrast, you had high energy on both sides, which led to a highly polarized result. Uh, and I wonder if that's the new normal, if that's going to become a new reality in American politics, because fear has become the animating principle of American politics. You heard uh, one side make the case uh, that the Democrats were uh, destroying the economy that we're letting crime run rampant. On your side, uh, including President Biden, uh, the case was being made that the other side is, is out to destroy democracy as we know it. Um, so there's a lot of fear-based politics that are happening out there. What is your sense when you talk to voters on how responsive they were to that? And I bring that up only in that, as we talk about the results, in New York, when you enter the next Congress, several of your colleagues will not be joining you, that Republicans uh, won there particularly on that crime issue? So New York is the exception. So the, the headline is there was a red wave nowhere except New York. Like the cruelest irony of the midterm elections is that New York was the only place 
where there was a clear red wave. We sustained real losses in Long Island, in, in, in the Hudson Valley. Um, and my analysis is that Lee Zeldin had the same effect on the 2022 midterms in New York that Donald Trump had on the 2020 election nationwide. So even though Trump lost individually, he drove up Republican vote so high that it led to congressional losses for the Democrats. Similarly, Zeldin, by aggressively focusing on the issue of crime, drove up the rates of voter participation by Republicans, which led to real Democratic losses in the Hudson Valley and in Long Island. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, local factors actually had national implications here in New York. What do you think the lesson is there for Democrats? I mean, given the, the pummeling, I mean, if the Republicans are able to take a House majority, it might literally be because of what they were able to accomplish in New York. New York, which was supposed to be our salvation, might be our undoing. That's the law of unintended consequences at work. Um, what, I'm, I'm, what did you I'm do worried. wrong? What did they get wrong? Uh, the 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 we we are we've lost ground on on the issue of public safety. Public safety has become a losing issue for the Democratic Party in New York, which is a dangerous place to be, and we're losing historical constituencies of the Democratic Party. Nationally, we're losing a significant share of the Latino vote, but locally here in New York, we lost the Asian vote, and we lost the ultra orthodox vote. Uh, which came out of record numbers, voting on, on largely but not exclusively on the issue of, of crime. Um, and, and that's going to be a challenge going forward. Um, and it worries me that Governor Hochul only won by five points because I never want to, as a Democrat, I never want to live in a world where New York could be a competitive state in a presidential election. Like five right. points might invite, you know, you know, a Ron DeSantis as a Republican nominee to 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 come here in New York and try to compete, especially given the performance he had in Florida. I mean, New York is pretty remarkable. I was looking back at Governor Cuomo's victory in 2018 by nearly 30 percent. I think it was about 25 percent. And right now, votes are still being counted, but it's about 52-48 right now, about 300,000 vote differential. You brought up the issue. You know, we've been talking about the issue of public safety. Do um, mind if you had a more moderate Republican candidate, or if you had a more depressed? Democratic turnout, typical of a midterm election, it could have been a radically different result, which is cause for concern. So, Characterize for me the impact of these results to the extent that you can speak to Democrats nationwide, but particularly Democrats in New York State. Nationwide, uh, in a world where the electorate is polarized, where the number of swing voters is vanishingly rare, elections have become about turnout. You know, in the places where we failed to turn out the vote, as in Florida, we lost and we lost badly. But in the places where we did show up to vote, we held our own. So when you turn out the vote, you win. So there has to be an emphasis on motivating the base on turning out the vote. Specifically in New York, we have to figure out how to re restore our credibility on the subject of public safety and the subject of crime, because it has become a real albatross around our neck. And it put the governorship, the Democratic governorship at risk. And that's not a problem that we can overlook. We cannot have a full sense of security from a five-point victory. What are you hearing from your constituents? What's your advice to your colleagues based on that, on the issue of uh, public safety? Fellow Democrats, what do you need to be doing? 
and how seriously do they need to be taking this issue? Look, I represent the South Bronx, which has been hit hard by gun violence. And my constituents, including my mother, worries about public safety. And you cannot tell people, well, it's better than the 1990s. That's an unacceptable response. You cannot deny to people what their lived experience is telling them is true. You have to address those concerns. And so I feel like we have to address the issue of public safety. We cannot come off as condescending because condescension is not only bad morals, it's bad politics. So on an issue like bail reform, et cetera, where do you stand? Um, and I think a lot of people voted on this issue when it came to their votes for Washington. What can Washington do about this? Or to what extent is this a local or state issue? Uh, it's it's a state issue. Uh, but if you ask me, you know, one of the questions that's debated is whether judges should have the discretion to consider public safety risk. And my view is judges should have the discretion to consider public safety risk because it's part of judging, right? We have judges for a reason. We don't have algorithms. And, you know, if you have two people who commit the same exact crime, but one is a first time offender and the other is the leader of the most vicious violent gang in New York state, uh, why on earth would I treat them as the same? I would want to consider the public safety risk of the individual when deciding bail. Uh, so that's my view, but that's a controversial view in New York State. Is there anything at a federal level that can be taken up in regards to uh, public safety or crime when you head to Washington? Well, the, the aspect of public safety that we can address at the federal level is gun safety, uh, which is a non-starter for Republicans. But mm -hmm. um, you know, we need standards of gun safety, national standards of gun safety, to prevent guns from flooding the streets of New York which compounds gun violence. You know, in my view, if you are soft on guns, you're soft on gun violence, you're soft on crime. Do you think given this is a weaker than historic showing for the Republicans that Democrats learned any lessons from 2022? In particular, I, I wanted to ask you about the messaging in the lead up to the election. The fact that um, there were a lot of people who felt that Democrats were insufficiently um, addressing the issue of the economy and inflation. In fact, in some cases, scared of addressing that issue. Um, when you, I don't know, to the extent that you've been able to speak to your colleagues or soon to be colleagues in the first 24 hours since the election, but is there a sense that in any way, shape or form this year was a wake up call? When it comes to inflation, the, the problem, we did not have a messaging problem. We had a reality problem. There's no, you don't mess, there's no, you cannot message your way out of historically high inflation. Um, I actually thought we, we, we took the right approach of focusing on issues that would motivate our base, which was the concern about our democracy, the concern about a woman's right to choose abortion. Those proved to be issues that motivated people to show up to vote, contrary to the conventional wisdom from the pundits. Talk to me about governing. Uh, right now, I think it might be, it might, could be a couple of weeks, right, till we know exactly what the makeup of the House is. What does a reality look like for you and Democrats uh, should the Republicans have a slim majority in the House, uh, both in terms of what they can do, but also is there room for reaching across the aisle and potential compromises? Um, I mean, there is, in theory, potential for bipartisan compromise, but I would submit to you that Democratic control of Congress is much more conducive to bipartisanship than Republican control because we tend to be much more serious about governing. You know, under the Biden administration and under a Democratic House and Senate, we've seen a historic level of bipartisan cooperation and compromise. 
uh, the bipartisan gun safety bill, the bipartisan science bill, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the bipartisan veteran health care bill. Um, it's a level of bipartisan cooperation that would have been unimaginable in the wake of January 6th, in a period of peak polarization. Uh, so I worry that Republican control of the House will lead to frivolous impeachment proceedings and vindictive investigations and, uh, and, and, and outlandish legislation um, that it will lead to more political theater and less serious governing. Do you, is there an opportunity to work with some of your new uh, soon to be Republican colleagues um, joining you as part of the New York delegation? Of course. No, no. Then there are Republicans with whom I have a wonderful working relationship like Andrew Garbarino. Uh, you know, I've, I've collaborated with him on issues relating to cybersecurity and cryptocurrency. So there are areas of public policy that lend themselves to bipartisan cooperation and compromise. And, and I'm open to it. If you and I agree on 1% of the issues, we ought to collaborate 1% of the time for the good of the nation. One of your fellow congressmen, Charlie Crist, last night uh, went down to defeat against Ron DeSantis by a pretty, uh, pretty large margin. You mentioned DeSantis earlier as a potential 2024 candidate. Um, you know, competing in a place like New York. As you observe what took place in Florida, in particular also DeSantis' ability to compete uh, in places like Miami-Dade County, Palm Beach County, historically Democratic places, what lessons as a politician, as a Democrat, do you take from uh, what you saw happen in Florida? Leadership matters when you have a strong leader on the top of the ticket has down-ballot benefits. And um, he has built an impressive profile for himself. He's a celebrity in conservative circles. He has, I mean, he did aggressively gerrymander the House districts uh, to the advantage of the Republican Party. Um, he's formidable. Uh, he, you know, I, I think the Republican Party has been largely self-destructing at the hands of Donald Trump. But Ron DeSantis is someone to be feared. He's a formidable um, threat to uh to the Democrat, to 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 our chances of retaining the presidency in 2024. As we talk about that, where do you uh, stand on uh, whether President Biden should run for re-election in 2024? Uh, if the president decides to run for re-election, I will support him. Uh, he's had a productive presidency. Uh, when you consider not only the bipartisan legislation but the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Plan, his his handling of the war in Ukraine, um, you know. It's been a largely successful presidency. Uh, he certainly has been a victim of larger forces. Like uh, I think the inflation is the result of COVID-19 and the disruptions in the supply chain. Um, but when it comes to the forces within his control, I feel like he's been a successful president. He turns 80 next week. Um, any questions about his age or his ability to, uh, to uh, you know, he would be 82 at inauguration, 86 by the end of his second term. Any concerns there about his ability to handle the job? I mean, I serve in Congress with no shortage of octogenarians. <laughs> and, you know, Nancy Pelosi is 82 or 83, and she is as sharp as any elected official that I've ever met. S speaking of Nancy Pelosi, um, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, um, Democratic House leadership has been uh, pretty consistent for a while now. Um, depending, and you tell me, whether you guys end up in the minority or the majority, what is your viewpoint on the need uh, for new leadership, uh, younger leadership in your party? 
Well, in general, um, I tend to favor a new generation of leadership. Um, you know, if the speaker decides to move on, uh, I'm fully supportive of leader Hakeem Jeffries as the future leader of the House Democratic Caucus. He is the best face and voice for the party. He's a compelling uh, public servant and we would be well served by uh, his leadership. Is is there a sense, though, that it's basically in, similar to your stance on Biden, that it's up to Pelosi and the existing leadership to decide to step down? I think it's, it's, it's ultimately up to the members. It's a, it's a discussion between the leadership and the members, the rank and file. Um, um, I think there, there are two competing feelings. There's a feeling of deep respect for the speaker and everything she's done for the party. But there's also a desire for a new generation of leadership. It's up to the caucus to negotiate those competing sentiments. If you put your finger up and take the temperature of the caucus right now, where, where do you think things stand? Or do you think things need to play out over the next couple of weeks for a final result before you get a better sense of that? Well, first we have to find out who's going to control the House. Uh, but then we should leave it to the Speaker to make her final decision. Um, um, we have enormous respect for the Speaker. Um, you are a, a millennial congressman. Uh, there is a new Gen Z congressman coming, uh, joining uh, from Florida, Maxwell Frost, yeah. 25 years old. Um, any advice? I mean, you talk about being in a body where there's octogenarians. I think Chuck Grassley actually just got reelected at 89 now. He's going to be surfing in well into his 90s as a senator from Iowa. What's your advice to Congressman Frost or Congressman elect Frost um, and other young um, leaders on, on how, to, uh, how to navigate the halls of Congress? Put in the work, like study your issues, immerse yourself in the workings of Congress, uh, make your presence known, but be respectful of the institution, uh, build relationships. You know, when you're an exciting new young member um, who makes history, the first wave of coverage is going to focus on who you are, but that will fade. Uh, and ultimately, what will matter is not who you are, but what you do, what you accomplish in the institution. And ultimately, that's where your focus needs to be. Congressman Torres, I appreciate you uh, chatting with me, uh, breaking down the results uh, and uh, challenging the various assumptions out there. And uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future. Always a pleasure. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening to this edition of the Mo News podcast, especially Congressman Torres and his staff for taking time on the day after Election Day uh, to speak with us and give us his take on what's going on there. He is uh, a rising star in Congress, so we will uh, stay close and continue to check in with him as uh, things develop in Washington. Like I said at the top, we'll be bringing you a number of conversations with lawmakers from both parties, journalists and experts, as we assess what took place in the midterms, look ahead to the new Congress, and should I say it, look ahead to 2024's presidential election. A reminder, you can also get Mo News in your email inbox. Head over to monews.bolton.com to subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow me 24 seven for all things news over at Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone later.